Would you open in your Bibles this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 6? Now let's have a word of prayer. Lord, for the next hour we give you our full attention. We believe that your spirit, alive within us, teaches us, instructs us as the word of God is activated. The more we learn about scripture, the more principles we understand, the more your spirit has to work with in giving us direction and making your speech very plain to us. So, Lord, we pray that we might get a good balance of all of Scripture, that we might learn the principles so that we might know the mind of God. As your word says, who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? But these things have been revealed to us by the Spirit. And so, Lord, we're able to know what you think, what you want, what you love, what you do not love. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have included us in your plan of redemption. And so before we even engage our minds, Lord, to understand your word and apply them to our hearts, we just from our heart want to say we love you. We praise you tonight. That we're your kids. That you love us. What a wonder that is. Just to think that God loves me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. To encourage, to explain, to enlist, and to establish. Those four words help you understand the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Those four E words give you the reason why Paul wrote this second letter to this church. First of all, to encourage them, to encourage them to forgive, to restore. There was somebody within their church that let's just call the sinning brother. Somebody had committed incest, was having sexual relations with his father's wife, and yet was still coming into the fellowship, participating in all of the events, And the church winked an eye at it and didn't do anything about it. Just thought, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect, so no big deal. And in the first letter, Paul said, kick them out. If they refuse to repent of such a gross sin, have nothing to do with them. In hopes that that would restore that person, jar that person into realizing part of my submission to God is to have a right relationship with the church since Paul said it is the pillar and the ground of all truth, and God does a work on earth through his church. They did that. They responded to that. And then in this letter, Paul is encouraging them to restore that person. He's repented. Now receive him back. Don't let him be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Enough is enough. Bring him back. Restore him. Love on him. Second, to explain. Paul had changed his plans. He said he was going to go to Corinth. He didn't go to Corinth when he said he was going to go. You know, I like that about Paul. He was flexible. He made plans and he made um, a strategy, but he was always open to God moving him to a different place, making him stay a little bit longer or cutting something short. But he had to explain to the church who was wondering, well, where is this guy? Why didn't he come? You can't rely upon Paul. So he explains to them why his plans had changed. And that's sort of the end of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 he does that. It it surfaces in a couple of places. Number three, to enlist their support. He's taking an offering, basically. Not for himself. Not scamming them. Not saying, I'm Paul the Apostle, and if you don't support my ministry this month... With a special seed offering gift, we're going to go under. None of that. Paul was taking an offering for another group, not for himself. 
but for the church in Judea, in Jerusalem, where it all started, from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, now in the uttermost parts of the earth, a church has started in Corinth. Paul instructed them that your brethren, your Christian brothers in Judea are suffering. They've lost their employment. They're being persecuted by the Jewish leadership. It's hard for them. Let's take up an offering in all of these Gentile churches in Macedonia and let's send it back. And then fourth, to establish. To establish his apostleship. For you see, there were people in Corinth who did not trust Paul, did not acknowledge Paul, tried to usurp Paul's authority whenever Paul would go there and do a work and then leave. Some, some group, some person would come in and, and try to dissuade the church from listening to Paul. They made all sorts of stories about him, accusatory remarks. So Paul found it necessary to establish his apostleship, to defend his apostleship. Now, we sort of jumped off right in the middle of uh, chapter 6, and we read it, and then I said I'd have to explain it next week. And I heard your verbal reprimand when you went, oh, which I like, by the way. Anybody after an hour Bible study going, oh, give us more, you know they're healthy. In verse 11, where the thought begins, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. I'm your spiritual papa. I birthed you spiritually into the kingdom of God. You heard the message through my words and so you're my, you're my kids, you're my children in the faith. And I'm speaking to you as a father would speak to his children. Be open. I'm opening my heart to you. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. He speaks about the yoke in verse 14. The yoke isn't something you and I are familiar with except in the morning at breakfast time. And, and it's a different kind of yoke. It's not over easy or scrambled. In those days, the agrarian culture, they were used to the yoke. Uh, an implement that was placed upon two animals to plow a field, to pull a plow. A yoke was a wooden crossbeam attached to two animals uh, by leather usually, sometimes a metal harness. And that crossbeam attached to another beam that grabbed the plow and, and as it dug deep into the ground, the strength of those two animals could pull that plow steadily and with a straight line under certain conditions to plow a straight field. So he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, believer with unbeliever. The illustration that is in Paul's mind is an illustration out of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, part of the law, part of the kosher law, the law of separation. Now, when you, when you hear me talk about kosher law, it's, it's the idea of separating things. You separate the clean from the unclean. You separate... Uh, in, in, in today's thinking, milk from meat, you separate certain dishes, etc. According to the law of Deuteronomy, God said, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You have two different animals, two different temperaments, and one is clean and one is unclean. The ox is a clean animal, 
The donkey is an unclean animal. It's a law of separation. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Picture it. A farmer wants to plow the field. He wants to get two animals to pull the plow. Two animals to stay under the yoke. He's going to pick animals, first of all, the same species, normally. He wants animals of like temperament, like step, like pull, like strength. Otherwise, if, if they're not alike, if they're not the same size, the same temperament, the same strength, they may, uh, one may lag behind and the other pull so you won't get a straight line, or they may go in opposite directions. If they don't get along, if they don't have the same values, the same goals for the job, it's an unequal yoke. It's out of balance. And so... In a spiritual realm, he's making the application, we shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship or communion has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness. Here's the idea. He's warning Christians against forming binding relationships with unbelievers that would hinder the believer from maintaining a solid Christian witness from hindering the Christian from maintaining the values that he knows are spiritual values in the Lord. Primarily, the application is false apostles, false representatives that have come into the church of Corinth, or false brothers and sisters. Make a difference. Make a separation. They're going to pull you down. They're going to cause you to go in the wrong direction. So that's the primary application according to the context is that they were to separate themselves, get out of the yoke of false apostles, false brethren. But it has other applications, of course. We could apply it to a variety of circumstances today. Forming a business venture with an unbeliever that would cause you to compromise your Christian witness, compromise your Christian values. Getting into a marriage with an unbeliever would make you compromise your values. Now, I've heard of missionary dating. The idea is, well, they're not a believer, but through my witness, as, as I love the Lord and I, as I witness to Him, He's going to become a Christian. Maybe. Possibly. Could be. I've seen it happen. Rarely, but I've seen it happen. There are exceptions. But the general rule I have seen and it's backed up by the Scripture for the, this very reason, is that the believer usually gets taken down to the level of the unbeliever. Oh, well, you know, I don't want to force anything on them or, or be overly spiritual and turn them off. And so the witness gets lowered. The standard, the value system, the bar gets lowered. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And now a woman is under the leadership of her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, she is free to remarry only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. In other words, if you're a Christian woman, marry a Christian man. If you're a Christian man, marry a Christian woman. That's not to say if you're already married to a non-Christian, go ahead and dump him or her. Because that would contradict 1 Corinthians 7. If the unbeliever is pleased to dwell with the believer, dwell with them. If the unbeliever departs, then you're free. But the idea of entering into a yoke, a relationship, God knows that you won't be happy in life pulling in two different directions. You're trying to walk the straight path, plow straight ahead, make that furrow straight and clean. And the unbeliever doesn't want to go in that direction, doesn't want to love God with all of his or her heart, wants to go somewhere else, do something different. So you'll be held back from having the freedom to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, to influence people with the kingdom of God. God knows you won't be happy doing that. And I have to, I have to agree with God because I've seen that in action. I've heard too many people say, You were right. 
and I say, I wasn't right. I didn't make it up. The Bible says that. God wants you to be fulfilled. doesn't want you to be miserable. And yet, so often I meet people who think God really is has it out for them. Why would God put that in there? He must not love me. Why? Well, because there's not any, any believers around that are cool. I've never met any Christians that, that, that are worth dating. Now, unbelievers, I've seen a few. So, so why would God do that? Because God loves you, that's why. And you know what? It might be hard for some to understand, but God actually knows more than you do. God sees further down the road than you do. And God wants your life to be able to plow straight ahead. Do the job, glorify Him, and be fulfilled and satisfied while you're doing it. Look at Samson, for example, in the Old Testament. Here's a guy who is very strong physically, very weak morally. Physically, he was like, well, Mr. T, Jack LaLanne, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all wrapped into one, and even stronger. But morally, he was a wimp, wasn't he? He loved those Philistine gals. He was an Israeli. He was under God's covenant. But there was this gal in Timnah. And then there was this harlot down in Gaza. And then there was that Delilah in the valley of Sorek. What a looker she was. And so Samson toyed with it. And the Philistines saw, this guy is so weak morally. We got him. So Delilah played with him. Tell me the secret of your strength, you big, handsome hulk. (laughs) And he just let her play the game. Well, if you weave my hair into seven locks, I'll be weak as any other man. And each time he revealed a little more and compromised a little more and and did not bring her up to a higher level of relationship with Yahweh, with God, but he was brought down to a lower level, the level of a Philistine, the level of an unbeliever. It was an unequal yoke, and it did him in. Now, again, I just want to reiterate, that doesn't mean you were to cut associations off with unbelievers. With all unbelievers, you can, have, you can have no association with any non-Christian. That's ridiculous because that would defy the very reason you're left on the earth, to be salt and light. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, Brethren, I wrote to you before not to keep company with sexually immoral people, nor with covetous, nor with idolaters, He said, when I wrote that, I didn't mean sexually immoral people who are of this world, that is unbelievers. Because he said, then you'd have to leave the world. You'd have to go out of this world. (laughs) They're all around you. But he said, anybody who is named a brother, who calls themselves a Christian and is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, don't even eat with them. There needs to be a line of separation if they're going to continue that lifestyle but claim, oh, I'm a Christian, without any repentance at all. And so in close relationships where you bind yourself and that binding relationship could compromise your Christian values, that is what is prohibited here. Don't be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with the wicked one? That's what Belial means. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Did you notice in verse 16 that Paul makes a difference between the living God and idols, idolatry, satanically inspired religious systems, as sincere as they may have been in Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite or Apollo. They were houses of worship for false gods. It was a satanically inspired religion crafted by the devil in order to deceive people 
by religion to keep them away from the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have to remember that Paul draws the line between what is true and what is false, what is real and righteous and what is idolatry, between what is divinely given and what is satanically inspired. I'm emphasizing that because of the generation in which you live. You live in an era. You live in a generation of syncretism. It's a system of thought. It's very prevalent in America. It's prevalent on Oprah. It's prevalent in late night media. Syncretism. Everybody has a piece of the truth. It doesn't matter which road you choose. Everybody has different names, but it's the same God, be it Jesus or Krishna or Buddha or Allah. It's all the same God, just different expressions, different pieces of the same truth. So you might call the God Allah, or you might call the God Buddha, or you might call the God Yahweh or Jesus, but it doesn't matter. As long as you're spiritual and as long as you're happy within yourself. That is the pervading ideology of our country today. What is, what is false about that, what is wrong about that, it, it is based upon an invalid premise. Here's the premise. The premise is that all of the gods that I just mentioned, all of the definitions of those gods are identical. And that only betrays an ignorance of all of those religious systems. Let's call them religious systems. Because if you were to look at the definition of God and all those, those religious systems, they are mutually exclusive, many of them. Now, they can all be wrong, but they can't all be right because each definition is mutually exclusive. It's contradictory. How can God be unlimited and limited at the same time? How can God be all-knowing and yet limited in knowledge at the same time? How can God be above and distinct from His creation, yet at the same time be a part of His creation? You have, you have definitions of God that are mutually exclusive. Now, people are saying these days, we're trying really hard to say that um, on mainstream media, that Allah and Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the Judeo-Christian God, it's the same exact being, the same God, just a different name. One is Arabic, one is Hebrew, or one is American. In reality, it's not so. If you go back to the roots of Islam, and Islam stemmed from a, a nomadic tribalism in the Middle East. And predating and during the years of Muhammad, there were many gods that were worshipped among the tribes of Arabia. Several local deities that were worshipped, but three principal universal deities, that it was a polytheistic ideology, many gods. One of the goddesses was named Manat. Manat was the goddess of fate. The second goddess was Alat. She was the goddess of the sun. The third was Uzzah. It was the morning star goddess. So that most of the tribes had their own gods and goddesses that they trusted in, but three universal goddesses over all these tribes. And there was a fourth, a principal deity who was the father, though aloof, who created the other goddesses. His name was Allah. But because Muhammad had relations with Jews and Christians and that fierce belief in a single God, monotheistic ideology, he wanted to rid his people from the other belief systems, from the other gods and goddesses, and so he proclaimed Allah, the, the one among many of the tribal gods as the only true God. So it, it comes from a polytheistic base. And to say, well, it really doesn't matter. They're all the same. They are not. You can say it, but it just betrays your ignorance of the facts. So we have to distinguish 
though loving all men and loving all women, and God loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved through the knowledge of the truth of Christ. There is a difference between truth and satanically inspired religion. And Jesus said, I am the door. And whoever tries to get in any other way, the same is a thief and a robber. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's a narrow road. Many don't like the narrow road. I didn't like the narrow road. When, they, when, when somebody preached the gospel, I said, who do you think you are? Telling me that I have to come your little narrow way. And they were very humble with me. They said, I didn't say it. I'll just read what Jesus said. Now, you, you can call Jesus a liar all you want, but that's what he said. I said, he did? And I said, wow. And I realized that all of these systems were mutually exclusive. They were not syncretistic. You can't throw them all together and say it doesn't matter what you believe in. So he even makes a difference here between the temple of God and the temple of idols that were very prevalent at Corinth. I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Hmm. What, what Paul does, and interesting the way Paul does this, is he, he weaves together at least four probably more because there's hints of, of other scriptures in this, but he weaves several Old Testament scriptures together into a couple of different premises, giving it sort of a free rendering. Uh, there's Leviticus, Hosea, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, principal ones, and he weaves all of these truths together, truths about separation. Come out from among them, be separate, I'll be your father, you'll be my sons and daughters. And, and what he's doing is saying this, it's not just a prohibition, it's a permission. It's not just a negative, it's a positive. You're not just to turn from things, you're to turn toward God. It's not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, but it's thou shalt not, thou shalt. Thou shalt not do that, but thou shalt do that. So you should turn from that and to God. And that's what Christianity is. It's a turning from, but it's a turning to. It's not just, I can't do that anymore because... I'm a Christian. But become, because I'm a Christian, I don't want to do that because that's going to displease the Lord, but I sure want to please the Lord. I want to have intimate relationship with Him. I want to turn from that that I might enjoy the father-daughter, father-son relationship. And when we do that, when we separate ourselves from sin and from those who claim to be Christians but are, who are living a lifestyle of sin, notice what God promises. First of all, acceptance. Verse 17 at the end, and I will receive you. Open arms. Verse 18, relationship. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So come out from among them. You know, watch out. Be careful who you hang out with. Hang out with people who are unbelievers to influence them with the gospel. Be a strong witness. Don't cut yourself off from unbelievers. But be careful how much you're letting their ideology, their way of thinking, influence you. You see, a Christian who moves the world is the person who isn't moved by the world. And you know, you know, everybody around you has an opinion about how you ought to live. And some of your coworkers and some of your friends and some of your family don't like the choices you've made. You know, I knew somebody that went crazy getting that religious one time. They lost their mind reading the Bible so much. Sure enough, they just they're just babbling scriptures in one of those homes. I've had people tell me that. And so if you hear that kind of input, oh don't read your Bible so much. Oh don't always talk about Jesus. Oh don't always do this and that, you will get tempted to pull back. Ah, 
ah, maybe they're right. Maybe I don't need to go to church. Maybe I don't need to read the Bible. Maybe I don't need to pray as much as I used to. I was a little crazy in the early days. Now that I'm more mature and more stagnant, I can just afford not to do that. (laughs) So be careful of the crowd. Surround yourself, though you want to be salt and light, surround yourself with good, solid, exemplary believers. There's an interesting species of alligator that I read about. He appears to be very lazy. Actually, he's very brilliant. This alligator doesn't hunt for its food, but it sits near the bank of the river, absolutely still, mouth open. Doesn't flinch, doesn't move. Can sit there for hours, and does sit there for hours, so that flies will see and sense the moisture on the tongue and fly up and land on the tongue and play around on it, inviting their friends to come over. Hey, fresh tongue, come on over. Other insects will hop up to join the party. Soon a lizard will crawl up to eat the insects that are on the tongue, enjoying themselves. Frogs will come up and also join the party. And then after a while, you have this whole menagerie of of small life. Then a sudden earthquake. Wham! The jaws come down. End of story. And so, you know, the idea is that, come on, just... Hang out here. It's fine. You know, the tongue's great. It's moist. It's smelly. Bring all your buddies. And so the baby fly says, Mom, can I go to the tongue today and play? No, it's dangerous. Oh, but everybody's doing it. It's okay. They've been out there for hours. Okay, I'll let you go this one time. It's the last time. Be careful of the company that you hang with. We all need to find that line between separation and influence. And, you know, you, you know what that is. You really, it's, it's not rocket science. You know when you're tempted. You know what situations you shouldn't be involved in because every time you're involved in it, something goes wrong. You get tempted above that which you're able to endure, and it's not that God placed you there. He gave you a way of escape. So just run from it. Flee temptation. Go the other way. Now, verse 1 of chapter 7 is part of the same thought, even though it begins a new chapter. It really shouldn't. Chapter 7 should begin in verse 2. Now, you might think, well, boy, you're arrogant to say that. But, but, but I'm not because, uh, you see, chapter divisions were not in the original. The original manuscript was a letter. And Paul didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 7. He just wrote, in Greek, it's, Just sentence after sentence, there's not even one, two, three, there's no verses. They're thoughts. And so the translators who translated from Greek into English had to study it and think, well, let's start it there. But actually, if I were doing the division, (laughs) I would begin chapter 7 with verse 2 so that verse 19 of chapter 6 would read, Therefore, having these promises, and he just quoted four texts of the Old Testament, the promises... Promises of coming out, the promise of relationship, the promise of acceptance. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Whenever there's a therefore, you know the rule by now. You find out what it's there for. And the reason therefore is there is because he's referring to the promises in the Old Testament. And if you do that, this is how you'll be blessed. Okay, if that's how we're going to be blessed, and since God has given us these promises, let's do it. Let's cleanse ourselves. Now, that's interesting. Your growth in Christ demands your cooperation. Sanctification is not just automatic, where where you don't do anything at all. Because if that's the case, then you don't ever have to read, you don't ever have to witness, you don't ever have to pray, because it's automatic. I raised my hand that day. No, you need to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit and cleanse yourself. And the idea is to, to say no to certain things and yes to other things. 
when you're tempted, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to replace that by doing this so that my mind's on this, and when my mind's on this, I won't have to think about not even not doing that. I'm just going to do that. He mentions all the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. That is inward and outward. Filthiness of the flesh, or that's, that's the obvious physical um, wickedness. Uh, the, the spirit is, is the inward, the mind, the thoughts. It's where nobody sees. Remember the prodigal son? He was guilty of, of the sins of the flesh. It was, it was outward. It was physical. He wanted his father's inheritance. He scrambled to another country, ran away, and, and, and just spent it all on partying. So people could look at him and go, look at that rotten sinner disobeying God. But he had an elder brother who stayed at home, played the game, went to synagogue. But he was guilty of the sins of the spirit. He was guilty of anger, jealousy, hatred. So that when his brother who had sinned outwardly came back home and his father said, Oh, my son is home. Put a robe on him, a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. The servant came to the elder brother and said, Your brother's back and your father has received him. It's a great day. And the elder brother said, Oh, really? And because he was angry, wouldn't even come in and respond to his father's command to receive his brother back. Jealous of him. Bitter at him, angry at him. And many Christians who are not guilty of sins of the flesh overtly have a little hidden room where there's the sins of the Spirit. Could be evil thoughts, lustful thoughts, thoughts of jealousy and anger. And you can tell it just in their personality, their little passive aggressive temper tantrums around people. Oh, I would never do that. Uh, you don't have to. You're doing that. <laughs> and in some ways, it's even more insidious. So having these promises, beloved, what a great, what a great thing to call a believer, beloved, those who are loved of God. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness or bringing holiness to its, its conclusion, its maturing level in the fear of God. You know what the fear of God is, don't you? It doesn't mean that you cringe at God. You're afraid of God. It doesn't mean that you think God's going to go one day when he's really mad at you for doing something. The fear of the Lord, simply put, is a reverential awe that produces humble obedience to a loving God. Reverential awe that produces humble obedience to a loving God. That's what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Leviticus, children were to revere their parents. That's the word that is used in the New King James Yirat is the Hebrew. Revere, awe, respect. And so we're to do that with God. We love Him. We respect Him. And the only, the only um, element where we're afraid of God is that we're afraid that we would displease Him because we love Him. That's a good relationship. When you're afraid that by your actions or thoughts you're going to displease Him. So the fear of the Lord, that's where it all begins. And when that, when that is in place, when the fear of the Lord is intact, that's when your sanctification, that's when your growth takes off. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. Now why did he have to write that? Probably because he was accused by people in Corinth of, of doing all these things. He says, we've wronged no one. Now, 1 Corinthians was pretty rough, right? He rebuked the church on several accounts. And he rebuked the sinning, incestuous guy and 
has sleeping with his father's wife. Get him out of the church. So no doubt some of the people thought, well, that Paul the Apostle is pretty overbearing. He's, he hurt that guy. Paul says, we, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've defrauded no one. Now maybe there he's referring to the offering that he's taking for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. How do we know this isn't a money-making, fundraising scheme by Paul? Well, the Corinthians knew Paul. It's a good question to ask, but they, they knew him. He had integrity. He wasn't doing that. He had a track record. We've defrauded no one. We're not taking money from them for our own benefit. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You know, it's just hard for some people to receive your love. It's tough. I've been around some people that are just so crusty and so suspicious. No matter what you do, what would you do that for? What do you mean by that? They just cannot open up and receive love. And what a miserable place to be in. Calloused from past broken relationships so that they trust no one in the future. They become isolated. And I fear that some of the Corinthians were becoming like that. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting in your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, now here's, here's his tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were literally anxieties. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast or the depressed, those suffering depression would be an accurate translation, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Let me remind you of the background. You may have forgotten it from the, the introduction of this book. Paul wrote the book, wrote the letter from Ephesus. He sent Titus to Corinth to kind of get a, a report. What, what's going on with these guys? You know, we'll meet in Troas. You go to Corinth. I'll go to Troas. You come back to Troas. You fill me in. Evidently, he waited for Titus at Troas. No Titus. Titus didn't show up. This caused distress. What happened to him? Why is he delaying? Why is he detained? Paul went on to Macedonia, where eventually Titus and Paul met. And it's like, man, where you been? And it was a good report. Titus had nothing but glowing reports about the Corinthians. They had received Paul's admonition. They were responding favorably. But what I like about these verses, again, remember I mentioned that this book is very open. It shows the personality of Paul, his open heart. You really get a glimpse into the honesty of this guy. We have, not all of us, but some of us have a false impression of Paul. Like he is this incredibly untouchable, perfect, I mean, he's Paul. You know, he's like John Wayne, Charlton Heston, Anthony Hopkins, all rolled up into one. In fact, uh, Anthony Hopkins played the Apostle Paul in, the, in the, the movie years ago, Peter and Paul. Who should we get to for Paul? Somebody like that, you know. And some of us are shocked that Paul opens up his heart and admits to people his own insecurities, his own fears, his own depression. And I like that because some of us think that, well, if you're a Christian, you're going to hide things very well. You're going to become a great actor. And so you're going to come to church and you're going to say, God bless you. Even if you feel really rotten, you're supposed to go, I feel great. (laughs) And you know why we do that? It's because there have been well-meaning, but bad examples of Christians who have said, how come you're not smiling? How come you're frowning? Come on, man. Smile. God's with you. And all of those little platitudes, so we think, oh, I get it. To be a Christian, you should always act that way so people don't reprimand me. 
And so you find husbands and wives fighting on the way to church, angry at each other in the car. Then they get out of the car and approach the door and see the usher. (laughs) Is my halo on straight? God bless you. How much better would it be? How much better would it be? And how much better would you feel if you were to walk up to the usher, even the usher, and just say, I'm having a bad Sunday, man. Would you pray for me? You might have a couple people go around and you go, yeah, yeah, me too. Would you pray for me too? I heard that. Just be open. Be real. Be authentic. And, and I love that. That's Paul's example. Now, four times in these verses, actually five times if you count verse 4, but in verse 6 and 7, four times he uses uh, a Paul word. He, he loves a word. It's the word parakaleo or paraklesis is the Greek word family which is is comfort or comforting or consolation, encouragement, exhortation. Uh, Those words is is that word parakaleo, to call alongside and encourage or help. Verse 4, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. Verse 6, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the Consolation, same root, with which he was comforted, same word in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced even more. Twenty-nine times in this book he uses that word. It's a good word. It tells me, if anything, that Christians ought to be encouraging, comforting. You can comfort by your presence, by your prayers, by words that stir us up to be more like Christ. Exhortation. Now, there's a good word. How many times have we used the word exhort as if it means admonish, reprove, rebuke? Hey, you. You're a sinner. You're not pleasing the Lord. That was wrong. Oh man, why'd you share that with me? Because I have the gift of exhortation. <laughs> Taint the gift. Taint a gift at all. Now there's room for rebu- rebuke, but call it what it is rebuke. Exhortation, parakaleo, paraklesis, is to, to build up, to encourage, to buttress, to fortify, to stir up to follow Christ. But I have the gift of exhortation. Why don't you rephrase that? You have the gift of condemnation. Call it what it is. And some people actually believe they have that gift. Henry Drummond once said, How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside? Paul needed encouragement. Paul was an encourager because I'll tell you what, Of all the books I've read of Paul to a church that gave him grief, this is the most encouraging words that he shared with any group. And he was encouraged by Titus. Verse 8. Hey, we're going to make it tonight. We're going to actually finish the chapter. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, say, I'm giving you hope. (laughs) There's light at the end of the tunnel. Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. That's interesting, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same letter, the same epistle, made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. What letter is he referring to? Well, honestly, that we don't know. This is the third letter. This we know. 2 Corinthians is the third letter. This is actually 3 Corinthians. Because remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, the letter that I wrote when I told you not to keep company with immoral people, what I meant was, so he refers to a letter in 1 Corinthians that he wrote before 1 Corinthians. That makes 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians, and that one we don't know of 1 Corinthians. Does that make sense? Now, there, there, there may even be a fourth letter 
That's under dispute. Scholars talk about it, but it doesn't matter. The point is, he wrote them a letter. It could be the first letter, the severe letter it's called, or it could be 1 Corinthians, principally chapter 5, which gives that stern rebuke, that when they read it, made them feel bad, made them sorrowful. Now, Paul didn't want to make them feel bad, but if making them feel bad caused a change, repentance, great, it worked. Follow his thought. Continue it. For godly sorrow produces repentance. There's that word again mentioned twice. Repentance to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Metanoia. Repentance. Greek word. Metanoia. To change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your your belief, to change your lifestyle. A complete change. Godly sorrow produces repentance. The sorrow of the world is different from godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply emotional grief. Remorse. Now you can be sorry for a number of reasons, not because you did something. You can be sorry because you were caught. I feel so bad. Why didn't you feel bad last week before you were caught? You've been doing it for three months. But now all of a sudden you feel really bad. It could be that principally it's, it's really worldly. It's just remorse. There's a difference between emotional grief and godly repentance. Here's an example. The difference between Judas and Peter. Judas was remorseful. He sold Jesus. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Afterwards, he took the money and threw it down, saying, I betrayed innocent blood, and he went out and hung himself. That's worldly sorrow. He could have repented. He didn't. He died. He killed himself. He committed suicide. Peter was also filled with remorse when Jesus looked at him after he betrayed Jesus. But it was godly sorrow. It produced change in Peter, produced repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. You did something about it. What clearing of yourselves. We're going to make sure that we we don't get labeled anymore as this loose church. So we're going to work hard to clear ourselves. What indignation, anger at, at the sin that they were duped by. What fear, that is the godly fear of the Lord. What vehement desire. A change of heart. What zeal, what vindication in all these things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. We talked about that last week. Second beatitude, blessed are those who... Anybody? Mourn. Happy are those who mourn. There's repentance. Poor in spirit, you recognize I'm bankrupt before God. I feel really bad about that. Second step, I mourn over my condition before God. Not blessed are those who moan, but blessed are those who mourn. That's the godly sorrow that produces repentance. I think of the life of David. David had so many different forms of sorrow in his life, remember? He had, um, he had Saul chasing him, almost killing him. He had a son of his die. He had a son of his, Absalom, rebel and, and cast him out of the capital of Jerusalem. Sorrow after sorrow, depression, etc., But the thing that broke his heart the most was his own sin. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance before God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. Purge me with hyssop, cleanse me and I will be clean. For my sin is ever before me. I acknowledge my transgression before you. That caused a depth of sorrow that produced change. Though his heart became hardened for a period of time before that, 
And perhaps the sorrow when Nathan pinned him with his sin was an ungodly kind of a sorrow that he was caught. It sank to the depth of his soul and it produced change. Repentance. Repentance. When my wife, who was raised to be an agnostic or an atheist or both, she was raised in an ungodly atmosphere. She read a little tract called Four Spiritual Laws that gave her, as she read it, the false impression because it showed that if you're on the throne that life kind of goes haywire and goes crazy and everything's out of place and wrong and you're not satisfied, not happy, you put God on the throne and you peace, joy, love and all these things. So she goes, great, I'll pray this prayer and I'll have everything go right for me. So she added, she thought, I'll add Christ to my life. And she felt miserable. And she went to church one day and she goes, I've got to go forward. And she went into the prayer room in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Malcolm, who's a British guy from England, he played in a band, he's a pastor down in Florida, uh, and had just read a couple books on repentance. She said, well, you know, I I read this booklet and I prayed this prayer and I added God to my life. What's wrong? I feel miserable. And Malcolm said, but have you repented of your sin? She said, have I what? Have you repented of your sin? What is that? And so he explained repentance. She goes, I've never done that. You just don't turn to God. You turn from that. You say no to sin. You make a change of your mind, a change of your lifestyle. You leave that behind. You're not perfect. But you grow in perfection, in maturity, in completion. And it begins by repentance, turning from. Did you know that one of the hallmarks of the New Testament is repentance? The first message by John the Baptist was repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first message taught by Christ was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If that's the case, if that's true, then why is repentance so seldom preached from pulpits? I'll give you three reasons. Reason number one, the modern emphasis in modern evangelism is not on repentance but on enlistment. How many converts did you have today? Rather than on a, a, a repentance. Somebody asked me, I don't know how many converts we had. I, I don't know the depth of the heart. I don't know how many truly placed their faith in Christ, turned from their sin and trusted Him. I, I believe this many, but I don't know. Reason number two, it's not a popular message. Well, if you start preaching repentance, there's some people that are going to be very uncomfortable with that and may not come back because it's an uncomfortable message. It's meant to be an uncomfortable message. If you're a sinner, you're not going to like to hear it. If you've done it, repented, you're not going to be offended by it. You're going to go, yes, amen, that's right. I've done that. And that's why Paul and Peter not only comforted the afflicted, but sometimes they afflicted the comfortable. Because if you're comfortable in sin, you need affliction to awaken you to the importance of turning from your sin and turning your life to Him. Godly sorrow works repentance. Oh, I promised three reasons, didn't I? I just gave you two. Reason number three is we live in a culture where we don't acknowledge personal sin. We don't like to call it sin. Sin's an old word. That's that's, that's a bad word. We don't even use it anymore. Let's call it a hang-up, a mistake. God didn't forgive mistakes. He didn't forgive hang-ups. God forgives sin. So call it what it is. And when you acknowledge what it is, you acknowledge you need a Savior... Blessed are those who mourn. They should be what? Comforted. You want to be comforted, you confess sin before God. And you turn from it. And it'll be like, ah, yes. It's how I feel when I brush my teeth at night or in the morning. Oh, ah, fresh. Okay, it was a bad analogy. (laughs) Therefore, we have been comforted by your comfort. We rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by y'all. 
For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. There he is again, that southern Paul. (laughs) How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. What a great, great open-heartedness of this apostle who had been wronged by this church. So embracing, so, so enlarged was his heart toward them. Now that ends the, the, that section of, chapter of, uh, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, next week we'll talk about it, that there's a whole new section, whole new emphasis opening up in chapter 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the truth. You said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You said happy, blessed are those who are poverty stricken in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, oh how happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When we stand before you, Lord, with with nothing to draw from in our own strength, no uh, merit of our own to stand on, but we acknowledge I'm spiritually bankrupt before God and I mourn that condition and I trust Him with a hunger and thirst after righteousness. In that state of true repentance comes great comfort, great release. We feel like saying, Ah, oh, thank you, Lord. And thank you for these words penned by Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.